Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, James. Hey, Scott. How's it going? It's going well. How are you doing? I'm good. For those who are listening, you keep hearing our weekly podcast, but it's been a little while since we've connected. I know. It's been a month and a half, I think. Yeah. Six weeks, seven weeks, two months. You had something happen in life. Yeah. Well, my wife and I had a child, which turns out to take a lot of your time up. So excited for this. Which I was told, but then, you know, it happens and it's like, wow, this is a lot. It's amazing. Best thing ever, but this is a lot. (laughs) Yes. I haven't seen Scott in a few weeks. Welcome to the world. I don't really get to see you the same way. We're doing a Zoom call this time. We're doing a Zoom call because I was just out on a conference and ran into people who might have COVID. So we're being real careful to keep your precious little one safe at home. Keep little Sutton safe. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. far, our in-person vibe is off today because we're not in person. Yeah. We don't have the vibe. Well, we've got information and we got a question that we're going to continue to answer. We do. We got a question from David. Thanks for submitting all of your questions, by the way. We appreciate them and we'll keep answering them to the best of our ability. We also appreciate you know, the insight that these provide to not only you, but to others. So please keep them coming. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review so we can get more people listening. Our whole goal is financial literacy for all of America. Mm-hmm. But one episode at a time. And for those who do leave reviews, we genuinely appreciate them. It's one of the things that keeps us going is knowing that we're helping help you all make better financial choices in your life. So thank you. Yes. Echo all of that. Yeah. So our question today comes from David. David said, writes in and says, hi, Scott and James. Thank you for your amazing podcasts. It's the one I most look forward to each week. Thank you, David. I'm wondering if you could talk through strategies for saving for college. My wife and I are 33 and we have two children, ages one and three. Hmm. We like to save enough to pay for their college costs, but we're not sure how to forecast what the cost of college will actually be. College costs can vary widely and have historically grown at different rates at different times. We're also not sure what type of college they will choose or how much scholarship they might receive. Ideally, we'd love to save as tax efficiently as possible, such as through a 529, but we're concerned about saving too much in a 529 in case they choose a less expensive school or get a significant scholarship, et cetera. We're currently saving some in a 529 to get our state tax deduction and some in a regular taxable brokerage account which could either cover college costs or be used for other purposes down the road. But we're not sure how much in total to save since we're unsure what college will cost in 20 years or so. Can you help us with how to best plan for our children's college expenses? Thanks, David. Uh, yeah. It's a good question because some questions, it's just a math formula. You can plug the numbers in and you get an answer. Yeah. And with college questions, it's anything but because it's almost like, okay, well, who knows what route my kids will go in the future? I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. I'm talking right. to David here. 
who knows what our financial situation will be like in the future? Who knows what college will be like in the future? Who knows what just different career paths will be in the future? And so this is one of those ones that it's not as simple as just crunching numbers, but there are some things I think are very helpful to know about how to think about this, which we are going to explore today in more detail. Agreed. Agreed. So, you know, as far as where to jump off, I just thought, well, let's just give an example, you know, for potential college costs. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Like one of the systems that James and I both use in our practice is a piece of financial planning software, and it actually pulls the actual cost of college currently for various campuses all across the country. And so I just pulled up UCLA's all-in annual costs. So it's in-state tuition, books, some fee for like, you know, kind of living on campus, like the whole gamut of what would be included in a year. And currently that's about, let's just call it $37,000. There's a lot. That's a lot. College is not cheap. Right. And now we're doing this in-state of course, of course, both in California. I think what surprises some people, maybe, maybe not, but of that cost, a big chunk isn't necessarily actually tuition. It's the things like a room and board and it's the things like meal plans and it's the things like absolutely just all that goes along with it. So people think, oh, in-state tuition, great. It's maybe 10 grand, 15 grand, whatever it is. Well, sure, that's part of it, but that's less than half of the total cost in many cases. So yeah. So this data specifically comes from the National Center of Education Statistics. And UCLA's room and board was really, or tuition was 13250 Books and supplies, 1300 Room and board, about eighteen grand, And other expenses, about 4600 Yeah. Yeah. It adds up. It adds it up. Add up. Seven grand. But so to that, we have to make some assumption about what it's going to cost in the future, to David's point. So lately with, I don't know about you, but what we've been saying for colleges that are public, we've been inflating them at about 3% right now. They used to be inflated at a higher rate, but we've actually seen those costs coming down rather than going up. Yeah. Meaning the inflation rates coming down in the you know, 2000s and the 2010s, it was really going at a faster clip, but we're seeing it slow down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that just makes sense when you look at just basic supply and demand as the costs of these tuition payments is the cost of college rises and rises and rises. At some point, it just becomes probably impractical to yeah. assume continue doing so and people can continue to pay it. So yeah, I think that we look at the same way of yes, in the past, not too distant past, these were increasing at a much higher rate per year, but now the average is right around that 3% per year or so, which is similar to just inflation as a whole. Yep. And then we need to come up with some type of a reasonable growth rate for the money. And you know, you're going to be more aggressive when the kids are younger. And then as they get older, you're probably going to become less and less aggressive with the money because we're closer to college years. There might be reasons to change that, but that's kind of too detailed for the conversation today. But you know, a reasonable rate of return would probably be somewhere between like six to seven percent, something like that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And if we look at the math of that and we just look at, well, how much do we go put in a fund to fully fund college? If we just look at these baseline numbers, we're going to need about $233,000 to fund college for a three-year-old starting in 2036. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically my three-year-old for UCLA. And then we just go look at, well, then how much do we actually need to go put away? If we start at year zero and assume there's, you know, the price point's going to be somewhere, depend so that 
I think my thought on this, James, and you tell me if you feel differently, but my thought is let's go ahead and try to get it directionally correct with a broad brushstroke rather than trying to pinpoint because there's a whole lot of ambiguity here. We can come back and look at this annually or semi-an, you know, every two years and go look at like, how are we doing and make changes along the way. But looking at this from a baseline, I would think like if you want to be fully funding college in about 18 years, you probably want to be saving somewhere between $5,000 and $7,000 a year. Yeah. Yep. And that's if you're starting at a young age, exactly, because you have the benefit of more years of contributions and you have the benefit of just the time value of money and compound interest working for you over that time. Right. Of course, if you're starting, you know, David, of course, he's writing this question. His kids are one and three. If you're starting when your kids are 11 and 13, 10 years later, it's going to be a different conversation. But if you're starting at the beginning, that's a good kind of benchmark starting point for this level of tuition that we're talking about here, which is about 36, 37 grand per year. Yeah. And so with that, it's kind of like, well, that's a baseline of, okay, here's roughly what we need to save. Now the question is, where do we go save it? Yeah. Man, this is a depressing episode to come back to after having a kid and realizing this is, I got to start thinking about this, man. I know what to send you for, <laughs> for Sutton's first birthday. Wow. Sutton. Okay. The 529 account. There we go. So yeah, the next question is, okay, once you've solved for how much you need to save, and everyone has a different philosophy on this. Some people, they say, hey, I want to be on track to be able to fully fund college for my child. Right. Other people say, no, I want them to have some skin in the game. Maybe I want to be able to fund half of it, or maybe I want to be able to fund the tuition portion and they help with other expenses. Everyone's a little bit different, but once you have that number down of the amount that you're going to fund, the next question is, where do you send it? Say it's five grand a year, whatever the amount is. Where do I put that five grand a year if I'm going to save for college? Yep. Yep. And you know, to David's point, he's kind of saying like, hey, I don't know how much we want to put into 529. So we can kind of talk through that. But just big picture, a 529 account, if you don't know what one is, it is an account that allows you to save for essentially college expenses, an accredited institution. And when I say it that way, I'm saying it that way because there actually are trade schools that can qualify for a 529 you know, expense. It doesn't just have to be a four-year college. So community colleges, four-year universities, trade schools, kind of a side note, you can actually use it for some private school funding for K through 12 now. That's not really what the intent of this question is. But so when you're going to go save to one, basically what it does is it allows us to go put after-tax money in. So I've already earned my money and you know paid my taxes and maybe I have my five grand, like James was saying before. And we can go put it in and we can invest it and we can let it grow and we don't have to pay taxes on it while it grows. And then so long as we use it for specific qualified expenses, like tuition and room and board and things that are outlined as qualified, we don't have to pay taxes when we take the money out either. So it's a pretty tax efficient way to save. Mm-hmm. And then different states have different rules for their treatment for saving. So some states actually offer you a tax deduction or something like that for putting funds in a 529 account. And then some states don't, like California, for instance, does not. And then the other little tidbit to know there is that if they do offer a deduction with your state specifically, you would want to find out. Does it matter where I put the money? So some states will give you a deduction, but you have to use the state's plan, which I know this sounds kind of odd, but every state has their own 529 plan. And then if they don't have a rule around that, then you might want to just go look at, well, hey, which are the best plans 
from a cost expense standpoint and usability standpoint. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And just for clarification, people hear, oh, some states have tax benefits. Wonderful. Only at the state level. Like there's never a case in which you can deduct it at the federal level. So even when there are state tax benefits, if you are in a state where your tax rate is relatively low and your state's option isn't very good, you still may want to consider other states if yours is super expensive or doesn't have great options or whatever it may be. So just keep in mind that potential tax deduction is only on your state taxes. It's never on your federal taxes, which is where the majority of your Really good point. The juice may not be worth the squeeze to get the special treatment through your state's plan if the plan doesn't stack up as well or as efficiently as other plans. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So maybe you can go put five grand in and you choose a 529 plan. You're going to choose some type of an asset allocation. Most, if you kind of set up the normal plan, they're going to basically go aggressive on investing in the stock market when your kids are younger. And then they're going to kind of have this, in a sense, a target date fund, like a retirement type fund. It's going to get more and more conservative as the kids get closer to school. So there's less volatility in the movement of those funds because we need them to be pretty stable when they go to college. But so let's imagine you're putting $5,000 a year in and you let it go grow. Well, in my mind, one of the things you might want to do on the front end is you might want to put more funds in the 529 account than other places because you get the tax deferral. You get to let it grow tax-free. Now you can decide what percentage we want to fund to, whether that's 50% of college expenses or 100% of college expenses. But as you start to see it on track to hit the number that you want, you could always choose to turn off the spigot and go put the funds in another bucket as well. Yeah. Yeah. Fully agree. I like that. Obviously, if cash flow allows, a lot of times when you're trying to save for college, there's also mortgage payments and retirement savings and you're saving for vacations and all this stuff. So And there's just like, you know, paying for a nanny or daycare. Yep. (laughs) All the things that come with having a little one in the first, you know, six years of life before we go off to kindergarten. Yeah. So life's expensive. And so is the 529 plan the number one priority? For most people, it's probably not. But to the extent that you can make it up there or one of the top priorities, at least, the more you can do on the front end, the better off you're going to be because then you can control in later years, like Scott's saying, do you start to taper off your own contributions as the growth starts to take over mm-hmm. in the latter years? And in the latter years, you might have a better sense for, is my kid going to college? And if so, are they going to a local junior college and then maybe transferring to the state school? Or are they going to go to a private university, which is maybe going to be significantly more expensive? So you have more flexibility on the back end to taper down if needed, or keep going if needed. With the 529 plan, as Scott's saying, the benefit is any money you put in there, it grows tax-free. Yeah. So if you use that example of saving $5,000 per year, I think that's the number you used, correct me if I'm wrong. Save $5,000 per year, say you do that for 18 years. If you get a growth rate of 7%, just hypothetical growth rate, you would have put in $90,000 of contributions, but your account would have grown to $170,000 more or less. So that $80,000 of growth, that's completely tax-free if it's all used to pay for qualified educational expenses. So that's the benefit. The downside is you're kind of pigeonholed into qualified education expenses. And if you end up withdrawing that money because your kid wants to go start a business, go buy a home, go do something else with it, then there's some penalties. So you always can get back what you put in. So in this example, the $90,000 that you put in over 18 years, 5,000 per year for 18 years, 
you get that back tax-free, penalty-free. Any growth on that money, you pay taxes on it, but keep in mind you've been deferring taxes the whole time. So that kind of comes out in a wash. And then you pay a 10% penalty on that growth as well. Yep. Now you can change the beneficiary. So if David, David has a three-year-old and a one-year-old, if he finds out one day, okay, three-year-old started a business, it's the next, you know, started a software business right out of high school and crushed it. Awesome. Amazing. They don't need this money anymore. Well, David could transfer that 529 account balance to the one-year-old and there's no penalty or taxes to do so. And it just begins growing for them. So there's some flexibility there with family, but you are a little bit more restricted with how those dollars need to be used. And they can also be used for advanced degrees, right? So if one of your children gets a full ride for undergrad, they might go ahead and use it for an advanced degree in the future as well. And as you're saying, you can rename beneficiaries. So it's not all necessarily lost to a 10% penalty. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. There's some control there. Now, if you get a scholarship too, you're not going to get penalized for that. Whatever the amount of the scholarship is, you can pull out and you're still going to pay taxes on some of the growth. But again, that has been growing tax-free the whole time. So it just comes out of a wash but you are avoiding that penalty. So it is restrictive, but not as restrictive, I think, as sometimes people make it out to be with assets in the 529 plan. Right. But let's say maybe they decide, you know, as David kind of has here, I don't want to put all of my eggs in that basket. I want to put them in other baskets. What are the other places? Where else can we go save for college? I think one that we like is just a regular taxable account. Open up an account that's not a 529 plan. It's not a retirement plan. It's just a regular investment account. Yep. The downside is you lose the tax benefits. Now, keep in mind the tax benefits weren't for making the contribution. So you don't lose any tax benefits up front because Mm -hmm. if I put that 5,000 into a taxable account versus putting it into a 529 plan, if you're in a state like we are in California with no tax benefits for funding a 529 plan, there's no tax benefits either way. So I don't lose anything up front. I just lose the tax-free growth on that money. But if you invest in a really tax-efficient way, you can mitigate the taxes on that as much as possible, but you retain full control over that. And I think why we like that is if your kid doesn't go to college, you still have full control over the assets. You can say, okay, I am going to give you these funds to use for this purpose. Or, you know, I need these funds for my retirement goals. Or, you know what? everything's funded and you got full ride scholarship. Let's take this and go on an incredible trip. You can do whatever you want with those funds. You're not restricted to using them just for college. Exactly. And the other side there is the other type of account that you'll see people sometimes turn to is called a UTMA or UGMA. So it's a uniform trust to minor account, or it's a uniform gift to minor account. And that's an account where we can go put money in and we can let it go grow And it's all under their tax return, essentially. But once they reach the age of majority, so in most states, that's either 18 or 21, that money is now theirs to do with whatever they wish. If they want to go spend it in Vegas, they can, or they could use it to go to school or anything in between. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So buyer beware. (laughs) That money does become the child's money at age 18 or 21, depending on the state you're in. Yes. Yeah. We don't see those as often. I don't think we love those types of accounts. Just kind of side note here. They exist. So we're talking about it. There's probably some alternatives that maybe can accomplish all the same benefits or similar benefits with not the same restrictions. Just quick side note. Yeah. The main things we see are 529 accounts, taxable accounts. You know, so maybe you have a 
family trust. And then you set up another account in the name of the family trust. And you start kind of, it's like you're setting aside a specific pot of money for kids in the future that you know you're probably going to utilize for them, but you just want it to be outside of the guise of a 529. Right. Another thing that I've seen folks do as well is kind of, in a sense, utilize, have some flexibility, especially those who like to do like, I think we've talked about Roth conversions before, non-deductible Roth conversions, sometimes called backdoor Roths, where people are making you know, the $6,000 non-deductible IRA contribution and they convert it to a Roth IRA and then they're investing it. That is still allowed under tax law currently. Every year you do that conversion, after five years after that conversion date, you can use those funds for anything. Mm-hmm. So like if Amanda and I are doing $6,000 each year and we're converting, that's $12,000 a year we're setting aside to grow for our own retirement, essentially. But if we really needed it, I suppose we could potentially use that $12,000 for college funding instead of retirement. It kind of creates a flexibility on our balance sheet that's an interesting potential to have, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And if income is under certain thresholds, then you don't even need to do the backdoor part of it. You just do a direct Roth contribution. Right. And pros and cons to this, the pro, of course, is look, there's flexibility with these dollars. And if you need to pull them out for college, you can do so and not pay any taxes. And if the parent is going to be 59 and a half or older by the time college starts, not only can you access the contributions tax-free, but you can also access the growth tax-free. Mm-hmm. So that's the benefit. The con is you're limited to a certain number of dollars each year to your Roth IRA. And sometimes those are really great assets for you to have as part of your retirement picture. So anything Absolutely. you're using for college is not money you can use for retirement. And because you can only get a finite number of dollars in there, it's just a conversation to have to see what makes most sense for you. I agree with you on that side of it from like, ideally, if you don't have to pull funds from the Roth IRAs, you would choose not to. The pro I like about it as well. The only other pro I would add is you're used to setting aside $12,000 of after-tax money. Yep. So when the kids go to college, you could simply turn off the flow to the Roth IRAs in those years and just turn it on to college. And now you've just come up with $12,000 of cash flow that you didn't really have to hunt for. You just are, you're used to it leaving the house anyway. Exactly. And I'm all on board for that as I think that's an underestimated part of college funding is people thinking, oh my gosh, I have to save all this money. And it's, well, if you save half that amount you think you need to, but then redirect that cash flow when college actually starts to pay intuition, that's going to get you a good portion of the way there as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, this is important because college is very expensive and finding the best way to fund it is important. And I think what we come back to is how do you balance college savings with everything else? This should not be the only goal. No. How do we sacrifice everything for college? But once you find that balance and understand how much you should be saving for college, finding the right place to do so is also important. So- And the right answer for you will be different than the answer for your neighbor, right? So someone will be like, I have to pay for 100% of my college or kids college come hell or high water. And they're willing to defer their own retirement to make that happen. I wouldn't advise that, but people, some people feel that way. And others are like, well, I'm going to make sure I put my own life vest on before I take care of my kids. And then there's everything in between and you have to find the right solution for you. Yep. Fully agree. 
Anything else to add to David's question here? No, just thank you for the questions and please keep them coming. Yeah. Thank you, David. And thank you, everyone who is submitting questions and everyone who's listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.